All right. I'm starting because I counted down to five and I think I was correct. So welcome to pre-Thanksgiving Dispatch Live. I'm particularly excited about this lineup because we're going to cover a lot of stuff. We've got Kevin Williamson, who's going to say Kevin things. We've got Esther, who's going to tell us all the reasons why we shouldn't like Cutter. And I'm here for it. And then we've got Declan Garvey who's going to talk about a special counsel, Jack Smith, and how, why does he look so good in purple? Uh, we're also going to answer your questions and talk about anything that comes up. But let's just go ahead and start with a little bit of rank punditry. Uh, and please send in your questions. We're going to try to get to him as many of we as we can. And uh, I, I, there's this memorable moment in a... Um, in a dispatch podcast where Sarah, who typically hosts our dispatch podcast, we, she goes around the round table and she asks a thoughtful question, adds a comment, and then has, a, you know, this comprehensive question. And we went from person to person to person. And she got to Jonah and she goes, Jonah, there's a pause and said, just say Jonah things. <laughs> and it was, it was perfect. And I'm always tempted to do that with Kevin, like Kevin, just say Kevin things, but I'm going to tee you up instead. Right. Um, Okay. Can I, can I hijack before you do though? Oh, well, say Kevin things for sure. Yeah. Well, here, here's a, here's a Kevin thing. So it's, I'm, I, I've traveled for Thanksgiving to spend some time with family and the particular branch of the family I'm spending time with, they're all sort of architects and engineers and nerds of that sort. So looking around the office here for something to read, I came up with A.M. Neville's Properties of Concrete. <laughs> Fourth edition. Now, those of us who have written books, how many of them got to a fourth edition? <laughs> Not very many. I would say Jonah's books probably have a liberal fascist is like five or six, but Properties of Concrete. This is a real book. This is not one of those books you hide a gun in. This is Properties of Concrete. And that's a thick book. Like I didn't think concrete was that complicated. but uh, Apparently so. I mean, so I've always stopped with just pedantically correcting people when they say cement. Should yeah. we should we expect a concrete for English majors in next week's newsletter? <laughs> maybe, maybe. We'll see. David, what well, kind of Kevin things can I help you with today? Well, let me just say though, because we pledged when we started the dispatch that we would not do clickbait, but concrete for English majors maybe the least clickbaity thing that's ever been written in history. So, I don't know that might that might be too. That might be too technical even for us. Might be, yeah. Uh, um, okay, let me ask you a question, Kevin. And I don't know, you know, you're you're in Texas. I'm in Tennessee. We're both kind of much more in red parts of America. And I'm going to tell you what I've noticed. And I'm going to ask you if you feel like I'm crazy to say this. Mm -hmm. um, and if so, why or why not, whatever. Um, I have noticed a lot of cooling towards Trump. And the simple explanation of this is that, well, they lost, Republicans lost in 2022, and that's what did it. Losing in 2022 is what did it. But I mm. think it's a little more complicated than this, and I really wanted to bounce this idea off of you. I think that it's not just what's happened in 2022. I think it has caused a rethink of pre-2022. In other words, it's saying, Oh, we should have won the midterms. I'm done with Trump. His endorsees lost. I'm done with Trump. It was much more like, oh, 
Now I'm seeing things in a new light, 2020, 2018, et cetera. Am I crazy? No, I think there's there's something to that. But I should correct you, though. You live in Red America. I live in Oak Cliff in Dallas, which may as well be Williamsburg. Okay. Uh, the people across the street from me are literal Democratic campaign operatives. Um, I've not seen a Trump sign within, you know, miles of my house. Uh, so, you know, Texas, as I've written probably more than everyone wants me to, is a lot like the rest of the country and that the cities are pretty liberal and pretty Democratic. And uh, so if you live in Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, inside the loop, um, you know, you're going to see a lot more Black Lives Matters. And in this house, we believe, you know, signs and yards than you are uh, Trump stuff. So I think that I have, I have a related theory, uh, a theory related to your theory, which is okay. that other than just the naked attempt to hold on to political power by Donald Trump, what a lot of the January 6th and Stop the Steal stuff was really about was coming up with a storyline that relieves Republicans of the need to admit and therefore the need to deal with the fact that the Trump coalition is a losing coalition. Mm. Um, there was an unusual election 2016. We're all surprised. And I'm, you know, um, mea culpa. I was hoping yeah. that would go the other way. Amen. Um, but it didn't prove to be a durably winning comp, uh, coalition. You know, it was, 2018 was pretty bad for a year for them. Uh, 2020, they lost the White House. Um, you know, that run was one of a very small number of runs in which a party has had control of the White House, the House of Representatives and the Senate, and then lost them all over the course of four years. I think there have only been a, a few others um, in which that has happened. Um, and there were three elections in which they lost that all at once, but that's a, that's a historical tidbit. So I think that there was a very strong kind of rhetorical and um, emotional need for a lot of people to not talk about and deal with the fact that this is a losing coalition. Now, there's also a, a big financial incentive not to do that mm -hmm. for a lot of people. <laughs> um, you know, the great thing for, you know, sort of right-wing media and Fox News and your kind of, uh, uh, you know, permanent right-wing grifter class is that the Trump movement was a really, really good payday. And mm -hmm. the fact that they were able to keep things going as though they hadn't lost those elections and to keep things sort of financially performing the same way for a few years after Trump was out of the White House is a really impressive, it uh, is. ought to be in Harvard Business Review case study. Uh, but, you know, that's got to have been worth hundreds of millions of dollars to various, you know, media properties and uh, Internet personalities and things like that. I think that um, you're right now, though, that um, well, a couple of things that have come together that have enabled this reevaluation of the Trump coalition. Um, it wasn't just losing the uh, mm -hmm. midterms, because if losing an election were enough to discredit this movement, they would have been discredited in 2018 or at least 2020 when mm -hmm. Trump actually you know, lost the presidency. So he's not going to be discredited by losing an election in which he was not a candidate. Um, that's not going to come between him and his sort of most preferred admirers. And I don't think this has either, by the way. I think the Trump people are still Trump people. Yeah. Um, right. They're the kind of, um, you know, the kind of viable, rentable, uh, large group of people in the middle who are, are who now having sort of second thoughts about this. And it's not just the, the the bad performance in the midterms. It's the emergence of a plausible alternative in the form of, of Governor DeSantis, who hits Trump on two things that I think are really important. Uh, one is that DeSantis emerged as a culture war totem in the COVID disputes, and Trump is seen by many people 
in the kind of, uh, you know, very online right, if you, if I must use those terms, um, as having been on the wrong side of that. You know, he didn't mm-hmm. fire Fauci. He sort of went along with everything. He wasn't the kind of culture warrior on COVID that um, DeSantis was until he sort of got dragged into there. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is that um, DeSantis didn't just, you know, win re-election. He won a very large uh, margin. Now, it's easy to um, exaggerate this. There are other people who were reelected in 2020 or won elections in 2020 with 20 and 25 point margins, too. Um, but Florida being, you know, historically seen as a presidential swing state uh, as being a place that's very kind of culturally uh, resonant in terms of national politics. I think that um, there's a confluence of factors here that are giving people incentives to rethink their commitment to this losing political movement and a chance to move on to one that has some more electoral promise. All right, so let, let's talk a little bit. I read, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was in an R, in R, as you would know, no, it was in in <laughs> R like today. So okay. yeah, um, and the argument was something like this. Well, what's happening to shape up to take on Trump is exactly what happened to take on Trump in 2015, 2016, yeah. a bunch of elites, this was MBD. Yeah. Yeah. It MBD did it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So MBD said, man, you guys are on it. That's fantastic. Uh, so MBD says, it's just the elite lineup again. And that, that bonds people to Trump. And it had enough plausibility to give me pause, but I'm not convinced. Let me, since you all read it, let's just go around. Start, <laughs> Kevin, start with you and love to hear y'all's thoughts on it. Yeah. I just, um, the whole real people versus the elites line of, you know, rhetorical um, posturing is just something that I'm not supposed to say on a family podcast. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, I, I think German word is bumpf. Uh, you know, it, is, it is not something that should be taken uh, seriously, I think, in a lot of ways, except for the fact that it is politically effective in some ways. So, you know, the idea that, um, you know, the banner of anti-elitism has and will be carried by some uh, New York City real estate heir who was a game show host and um, and, a, and a celebrity is just absurd. Um, that is, uh, you know, a very difficult thing to take take seriously. And I know I've, I've told the story too many times, but I, I, I've heard people who are chairman of the Republican Party in states talk about, well, I'm against the establishment. <laughs> no, I'm, you're not I'm, chairman of the party, you're the establishment. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, this sort of Republican crazy talk is what they do. Um, you know, the, the, the unique thing about Trump, um, and it was really important in 2016, wasn't that he had some particularly resonant policy message. It's that he was a celebrity. And he was a celebrity who hated the people that the people who rallied around him also hated. And, um, you know, Rich Lowry famously wrote of Trump as being the only middle finger available and mm-hmm. he was criticized uh, for that as, you know, this as a, a sort of, a, you know, enabling um, um, justification. And but whether you think of it that way or not, it's it, it's true in a lot of ways. And that's mm-hmm. that was why Trump was politically successful. And. Um, I think some of that really has worn off. I mean, the man has been president of the United States of America. He was for four years. And I think that even among the kind of, you know, fanatical quasi-religious devotees, they have to look at it and say, well, you know, the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress in the first part of Trump's administration, and they didn't build any wall. You Mm -hmm. know, they didn't actually change U.S. immigration policy. They didn't really do much to change U.S. trade policy in a 
in a long and lasting way. A lot of these things that they really care about just didn't happen. And um, that, you know, combined with the recent disappointment and the emergence of a, of a plausible sort of socially and culturally resonant alternative, I think, um, you know, these people, do, I don't want to get like science fiction about this, but they don't live in a linear timeline, right? So um, they're really good at going back and sort of, I guess, retconning, you know, their own storylines mm -hmm. to come up with some justification for where they are at any given moment without looking like they, you know, changed their minds or admitting that they were wrong about something or any of those sorts of things. So you'll see a lot of that, I think. But um, while I do still think that if I were betting my own money on it, Trump is still the most likely nominee of the Republican Party. And um, if inflation is at 11 or 12 percent, he's got a good chance of being elected president if he is the nominee. But um, it feels less likely than it did a month ago. Declan, you chimed in immediately and said it was MBD, which uh, our our I, pal MBD. So it's, it's uh, it tells me you read it. So I did. Your, and your thoughts. It, it also tells you, uh, Esther can speak to this too. We read pretty much every headline uh, that 15 or 20 different publications publish on any given day as, as we're preparing for, for TMD. So I, I definitely read at least the headline and at least the first three or four paragraphs of it. Um, but I, I do think he gets to, uh, and th this speaks to kind of a, a, a broader, um, discussion that's happening at national review and some other right-leaning organizations is that if you, if the, again, Kevin, sorry, like, establishment uh elite what have you the the basically the the jeb bush old guard of the republican party comes off as if it is pushing uh desantis too hard at this point that it's going to backfire that it's going to make it seem like he is no longer like people like ron desantis naturally a lot of a lot of trump supporters people who didn't love trump but voted for him are gravitating to ron desantis on their own if there is kind of a uh, a concerted push to clear the field for DeSantis to, uh, and, and there's a, there's a slightly different, it's a nuanced take, but if it's uh, Ron DeSantis needs to be the nominee so we can purify the Trump era and, and kind of detox of the last seven years, that's a different argument than Ron DeSantis needs to be the nominee because he's the heir apparent to Trump, mm -hmm. and he's the one who can kind of carry the movement forward and actually win. That's a different argument, um, and and I think people are pointing out correctly that that first argument is going to you know if I don't I think Ron DeSantis is smart enough to not kind of get tethered to that, but if that is what the argument ends up being, is that Ron DeSantis is a purer version of Donald Trump, a a um, more neutered version uh, version of Donald Trump, then that's going to uh, alienate him from some of these voters that he needs to win. So to the extent that there is a concerted effort on the part of whatever you want to call the the people who are, um, you know, speaking anonymously to the New York Times about uh, about the Republican Party's future and and kind of how operatives are angling and, and I think you call them the senator. There you go. <laughs> yes, there's there's a uh, Tommy Tuberville is the only member of the Republican member of the U.S. Senate to say he will support Trump in 2024 as of right now. Um, I keep I keep telling myself he's better than Roy Moore. He's better than Roy Moore. <laughs> <laughs> and th that is that is uh, he's the only person who said that within the past two weeks. 
I'm sure these senators would not like me to remind them, but Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley said the same thing in December of 2020, uh, mm -hmm. that they uh, are signing up for Trump 2024 at that point. Um, so it, it's people say a lot of things. They mean some of them. They mo don't mean most of them. Uh, but I do think that there there are different ways to bring about this kind of transition if you want to think of it as a transition from Trump to non-Trump. So Esther, you're part of the Morning Dispatch dynamic duo. So as part of Soon the Morning Dispatch- Soon to be Dispatch, trio. Soon to be trio, hopefully. Yes. Soon to be, or do we have an announcement? Hiring, to folks, apply. <laughs> oh, okay. So there's a there's a position. Okay. Well, fantastic. Send yeah. your CVs to Declan and Esther. Um, so Esther is one half of the Morning Dispatch uh, dynamic duo. You're writing up an analysis of the argument that says- if the elites come against Trump, Trump will win. Um, how are you analyzing that? Man, definitely <laughs> Man. testify that every time I'm analyzing this, I really come down to, I don't know, this is years away. How should I know? <laughs> turn? Uh, and, and I would say, you know, that is my take at the moment mm -hmm. is who's to say what's going to happen. But I would, I would concur with the assessment that, uh, if, you know, that this narrative takes hold that DeSantis is the palatable version of the future of the Republican Party for people who really want it to be what it was pre-Trump, then that's not going to be popular among some of the most fired up voters. Um, but conversely, if he is the heir apparent and that continues to be the narrative, then I do think, uh, you know, similarly to what Declan was just saying, um, People who are already naturally gravitating to him are willing are willing to embrace him as the next guy, as opposed to the guy who's going to depose Trump. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just waiting to see which one sort of becomes the driving, I guess, um, perception of DeSantis's rising star. Right. And can we okay. just reflect? It, it's been about in an, in 40 minutes. It will have been an a week since Trump declared his his resurgent campaign for the presidency and just kind of how bad of a week he's had to kind of I mean talking to bad day to day man yeah talking to republican operatives over the past 5 years not just the past week it like the campaign announcement is supposed to be this incredibly choreographed incredibly um glorious and uplifting and positive message you have kind of a, a series of endorsements you have that are ready to roll out policy proposals all these things the past week he's gotten endorsements from like six backbench freedom caucus house republicans the young republicans of new york he emailed that out as a blast to that was like the third endorsement that he touted which to be uh, clear the young republicans of new york they're maniacs <laughs> Okay, they're they're known for this. It's they're they're well anyway. I don't I don't want to go all the way and slander them that and say they're the Republican version of the Libertarians of New Hampshire, but you're <laughs> you're only going to know that reference if you're way too online. And please don't please stop. But uh, yeah, you're. I'm sorry. Continue, Declan. Yeah. So I mean, he's had that. Um, you know, he got the this. We'll talk about the special counsel later. That's obviously going to kind of weigh heavily over the next couple months. And like four of the nine biggest Republican mega donors have come out publicly saying we're not giving this guy an effing nickel, I think was one of the quotes from from one of them. Um, 
he's had a terrible week. Nobody like again, one Republican senator has endorsed him. Uh, this is not. And now he has to run for president for two years. That's expensive. Yeah. That's he's going to kind of he needs to find ways to fill the space of the next you know six months until any challenger comes out and, and talks to him. Fox News is not having him on every day like they used to. Newsmax has not had him on at all, I think, since his mm-hmm. campaign endorsement. He's going to kind of struggle here to justify why he made this announcement when he did. And he's going to have to be, I mean, Donald Trump paying his campaign vendors. We'll see how that happens. But he's going to be theoretically paying people for the next six months to do something. But we don't know exactly what. Well, we do know he banked a ton of money and didn't spend it on candidates in 2022. So we've got he's got some room to run. OK, one one quick thing from Christopher. I don't want to depress all of us here. Um but we are in the wrong line of work because properties of concrete fourth edition <laughs> is currently going for one sixty seven ninety five on eBay. Way done. Well done. Am Neville artificial scarcity. It's uh, a yeah. Well- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we have a note from the production team did not fact check, fact check this, but it's funny. <laughs> I guess <laughs> too good to check. But anyway, so I have a theory, another theory, Um, and bear with me for a second. So if you're a huge NBA fanatic, as you should be, you're going to remember the term, the malice in the palace. Okay. The malice in the palace was this moment also known as the Artest melee. This is when Ron Artest was playing, I believe for the, for the Pacers, some fight broke out. Some stuff came from the stands. The fights filled it, spilled into the stands. I mean, there were NBA players punching fans, fans punching NBA players. It was just a mess, okay? The NBA cracked down, and you can't. It's very If you're going to engage in any kind of acts of violence now as an NBA player, just be prepared to lose a lot of money, lose a lot of playing time. And so that created a phenomenon called hold me back. So Jalen Rose talks about this. About you, anytime you see a fight about to break out in the NBA, you'll see someone charging, and they might be six, seven, two forty-five, one of the best athletes in the history of the world, and like a, a a ball boy is holding them back with one arm, you know, and that's what they call hold me back. So you you posture that you're fighting, but you're not really fighting. Okay, I think what's here's my theory. Donald Trump is malice in the palace. Ron DeSantis is hold me back because he's coming after you, but it's all going to be, he's going to pass a law. The law gets struck down in court. And he says, <laughs> I fought, I fought for you. Hold me back. Um, Donald Trump comes out, you know, he had January 6th. He comes out and says, I want to execute drug dealers. DeSantis isn't going to match that, you know, he, you know, he's not going to match that. So do we have a transition from malice in the palace to hold me back? Um, is that well, a ridiculous thought? Do, does that mean if to, to kind of continue this metaphor, is Donald Trump going to legally change his name to meta world peace, which is what <laughs> Ron Artest is now known as? Uh, I think I think after a lot of reflection on that incident and kind of his his role in it, he is now literally known as Meta World Peace. So he is Meta World you know, Peace. Maybe you know, maybe a conversion. Day, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have chosen Meta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Instagram World Peace. Yes. So the respectable fighter, Kevin 
thoughts on that idea or I'm, no? just, I'm picturing Donald Trump and uh, Ron DeSantis settling this with a game of one-on-one, <laughs> which is um, Ron DeSantis was a varsity college baseball player. Was he? Yeah, yeah he was. Like yeah, the not, best I don't know much about basketball because I was my, my sport was wrestling, which is, as we say, what men do during boys basketball season. And uh, <laughs> so it's not really a sport I've ever followed all that much. Um, <laughs> although I do remember the uh, the the fracas of which you speak. Um, there's obviously a lot of theater in this on both sides. Trump is better at theater than most other people in politics because that's his business. Um, you know, he's got a lot of experience in doing theater at a very, very high level, whereas most of these guys have experience in doing theater at a very low level. And that was really apparent, I think, in the 2016 primary, as I was alluding to earlier. I think it was really kind of the main thing. I think that DeSantis is a guy who um, kind of has the soul of a Mitch McConnell, you mm. know, basically a cold-blooded political operator who's got, you know, some beliefs and ideas and things he'd like to get done. Um, essentially at heart, a conventional politician who understands that in the current environment, he has to play this character. So I think it's less NBA than it is uh, WWF, you know, mm -hmm. whatever they're called these days, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. wrestling, WWE, yes, yes. Not the World Wildlife Fund, no. So Right, yeah, I get these no. things uh, confused. So it's... Oh, yeah, it was National Recovery Act. Every time I see it, I think it's the National Rifle Association because <laughs> that's, you know, where where my heart is. But, um, yeah, I think that um, if it comes to being a kind of who can be the more outrageous um, lightning rod of resentment and anger, no one beats Donald Trump at that game. Nope. No. Mm -hmm. um, he is the the Michael Jordan of that uh, nonsense to uh, keep up the sporting metaphor, and Ron DeSantis just isn't. Um, you know, he's um, he's. Um, I was trying to think of a good way to uh, to uh, insult you on a sports thing, but I can't think of what I was going to say. The University, of Kentucky, <laughs> but I think they're actually pretty good at basketball. So um, <laughs> typically, yes. Um, so that was a completely failed a rhetorical gambit on my part. <laughs> that's that's live entertainment for you. Um, but yeah, to the extent that it's a theatrical competition, um, I think it's hard to beat Trump in that. But presidential campaigns also require a lot of, you know, real work and real organization mm -hmm. skills and things like that. Donald Trump was able to get by without that in 2016 for a lot of reasons. And I kind of think that, um, and I wrote this in the dispatch, that um, I don't think that the midterm fiasco is all downside for Donald Trump. Because mm -hmm. a Republican Party that is in sort of political and policy disarray and riven by factional fighting and that kind of stuff, that all works to his advantage, right? You know, if the Republican Party had won some huge commanding majority and is going to spend the next year talking about its legislative agenda and overriding vetoes from Joe Biden and that kind of thing, that would create a very, very different sort of political environment and one in which Donald Trump would not be as apt to thrive. All right. So we're going to, we're going to move on. Um, we we Declan Declan's out. He's done. Uh, no, we're going to move on. Um, we got a note from. All right, and I'm going to bitch. Uh, I'm going to. Oh my gosh, what did I just say? Where I'm going to butcher. <laughs> I'm going to butcher this name. Theron Thern Th Terran. 
So Theron Thern Terran, give us the phonetic pronunciation, give us the pronunciation of your name. But Theron Thern Terran wants Esther to weigh in on it. He's saying, let's move on. Let's let's go on to Cutter. And I'm eager to do this. Um, so World Cup kicked off in a very unlikely country in many ways. You don't think of Cutter um, as the it's center. No, not the center of the sports universe, not a soccer powerhouse, but it is now the center of the soccer universe for this month. What's wrong with Cutter, Esther? Why should we be disconcerted, to say the least, about its uh, about that place and the World Cup being there? What isn't wrong would be the shorter question to answer. Uh, <laughs> I mean. I have I have become an absolute nightmare to have at any World Cup viewing party. Um, not that I wouldn't have been already, but now I'm armed with a lot of information to tell you why you should feel bad about watching soccer right now. But the answer is, I mean, it has been just scuzzy from the get go. They won the, their bid to host in 2010. And, you know, like you say, it was pretty weird. They're a country that is literally smaller than Connecticut. They've not had a major soccer presence and they just didn't have the infrastructure to support this. And they are, you know, a desert country where it's like 110 degrees when the World Cup is normally played, which, you know, I'm not a pro soccer player, but that's not the ideal soccer temperature. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there were a lot of raised eyebrows. And sure enough, I mean, almost immediately there's allegations of corruption and bribery. And no, no. In an international sports body. I know. Who would have thought? Not especially soccer. FIFA is just hilariously corrupt. Like this is long-standing thing. <laughs> and there were, you know, DOJ investigations and Swiss authorities swooping in, and and it's not been proven that um, Qatar bribed FIFA officials, but uh, it doesn't look great. But anyway, they won the contract, right? They won the bid, and they have poured about $220 billion it's reported into preparing for this. So they certainly, you know, put their money where their mouth was. Um, and they had to build a lot of stadiums and hotels and, uh, you know, uh, metro expansions, just kind of all the stuff to support having like a million visitors in a country that has about 300,000 citizens. Yeah. Uh, and all of that labor, well, most of that labor is done by migrant workers. And, over the last decade or so, um, uh, the Guardian did a count. They found um, 6,500 migrant workers, uh, a little bit more than that, who had died just from a couple of countries in South Asia. Uh, Amnesty International did a count, and they said about 15,000 migrant workers have died in uh, Qatar over that time. And those are not numbers that are like, this is the amount of people who died building the stadiums. Um, those are just numbers that say, hey, a lot of people are coming here to work and then dying in country. Um, and part of the reason that we can't exactly know how many of those people died because of working conditions is just that Cutter isn't that interested in investigating. Um, they're happy to say, oh, natural causes, um, things like heart failure and lung failure that can be related to heat exhaustion, um, especially among, you know, these are uh, predominantly sort of young to middle-aged men who are generally healthy. So they arrive and they die unexpectedly. Um, and 
you know, so while we can't we can't pin down exactly how many of those deaths are due to working conditions, we do have a lot of information about really bad working conditions. Things like people working, you know, 12 hour shifts um, without access to water easily or bathrooms, you know, literally having to go ask at nearby households. Um People having their pay withheld or their passports uh, confiscated when they get to the country so that they can't really leave. Uh, Cutter has had this system where uh, the employer sponsors your visa, your ability to be in the country. And so people literally needed permission from their employer to switch jobs or to quit their job or to leave the country. And that power imbalance just created, you know, opportunities for abuse, which um, just absolutely have run rampant. And some of the international attention on this because of the World Cup has helped spur some reforms. So in 2020, they changed this system. Uh, Migrant workers are now allowed to quit their jobs without getting permission from their employer. And there is a minimum wage that's been established. It's still sort of open. You know, it's it's unclear yet how serious uh, Qatar is about actually enforcing these new laws. Um, the Guardian had a report out earlier this month about security guards who said, uh, yeah, we're working super long hours. We're getting paid like less than a dollar an hour. Um, and we are being housed in these terrible, you know, dorm conditions. It's dirty. It's crowded. It's far away. So there's the worker abuse. That's part one of the many problems. There's also longstanding, uh, it's a Muslim country and uh, homosexuality is effectively criminalized. Um, You can get up to seven years in prison uh, for men having sex with men. And uh, LGBT- Did Rod Dreher draft that law? No, I'm sorry. That was, nope, sorry. I retract. I retract that. Okay. Anyway, continue. Sorry. And, uh, well, I mean, people in the country report getting harassed, getting beaten, getting intimidated by law enforcement. Um, and so that's been something that's gotten also a lot of attention uh, as people are upset that it's being hosted here. Uh, I think it was seven European players on seven European teams planned to wear uh, rainbow armbands to to protest this. They backed down when FIFA threatened to give them yellow cards. Um, so nobody's an, really an American saying. apparently got accosted a on a train today uh, because he's wearing a rainbow flag button. And, uh... Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, another thing is it's illegal to criticize uh, Qatar's leader. So it's not really like a big free speech environment all around. Um, and, and there's other things. I mean, there's repression of women. Um, like I said, free speech is an issue, um, harassment of dissidents. So really just a long and, and charming human rights record. Um, and, and if you're wondering if FIFA has learned its lesson from the amount of criticism that they've gotten over this, the answer is absolutely not. Uh, the president of FIFA gave a speech Saturday, an hour-long speech basically saying, you all need to stop complaining. It's extremely annoying to me. And (laughs) as part of that speech, he threw out there that maybe North Korea could host the World Cup because it could really unite the world. Um, So in terms of like (laughs) their decision-making matrix for who should host, I would say that human rights is really not, not in the mix strongly. You know, it is not often you run into Austin Powers villains in real life. Um, but these guys, these FIFA guys, it's and they're even right down to like the European accents, right? It, it's the it is it's Austin. Pa- <laughs> it's, 
Amazing. Amazing. And, and the treat, you know, I think uh, I had an internet glitch for a second. Um, and I'm from context clues, I'm getting that you talked about migrants when you use the term migrants. That's not how they're not treated the way migrant workers in the U.S. are treated. Um, you know, a long time ago, I worked for a newspaper in India and we would have just pages and pages this is in the 90s of classified ads for um, people looking for workers for these, you know, Gulf countries. And I spoke to a guy one time who was a recruiter whose you know, job was to just basically go over India and round up these people. And from the ads, it seemed that they they had a marked preference for Hindu and Christian uh, workers. And I asked him about this. He said, well, of course. I mean, no rights. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I when, there's a lot of evidence of discrimination based on religion yeah. and race in the treatment of workers. And I mean, a lot of these recruiters charge fees to people to come to work. And so from the get-go, from the minute they arrive, they're already in debt. Uh, and so, you know, even now that it's legal to quit, um, they're already in a financial hole and, and they really end up trapped. Yeah, I remember oh, you know, yeah. some years ago, there's a financial crisis in, in that part of the world. And the highways were just clogged with abandoned cars because you know the workers were going to the airport as fast as they could to get out of the country because they were going to lose their jobs at which point they would become illegal immigrants and subject to arrest and um so they were just you know booking out of there as quick as they could uh, as quick as they could go so Theron 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 has a um follow up as <laughs> a follow up question the last minute alcohol cancellation. <laughs> That's What's, true. I didn't even mention that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, a Muslim country, um, there's a lot of rules around alcohol uh, and they had come to sort of an uneasy agreement. Uh, they were going to allow beer to be sold in these special tents near the stadiums. And then I think it was Friday, the announcement went out that just kidding, no more beer, no more alcoholic beer, excuse me. Um, there's still non-alcoholic beer for sale uh, in and around the stadiums. And if you are a super fancy ticket box holder, you can still get an alcoholic drink. So all you have to do is be a FIFA official and you're still good to go. Um, but for the average Joe, you have to go to the special areas to drink your beer. And I do think unless you've been to the Gulf states, it is really tough to describe the sheer magnitude of the climate. Yeah, it is something else. Now, um, I was I spent a little time in Kuwait before I went to Iraq. And the best way I can describe the um, climate in in May in Kuwait when I was flying back home for mid-tour leave because I first flew to Kuwait in November, came back through for mid-tour leave in May, then flew back until I left at the very end of September of 08. But in May, it wasn't even high, the high summer yet. And the best way I can describe it is imagine walking into a pizza oven and then having someone throw sand in your face. And that's just about oh, what try to live in a summer in Houston, you sissy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will stack up a seven elevens sweat because it's a hundred percent humidity outside and five thousand degrees. It's I mean, just just think about how many concessions FIFA has made to make this happen. Both yeah. you know, this this is almost 
basically every time that I, I can think of it, this is held in the beginning of June into July. Um, that's when most of the world is accustomed to to attending these games, to watching these games. That's kind of the habit formation that's been built up. How much money are they sacrificing in alcohol sales um, by by not allowing that? And and I think I saw you know, Budweiser, who's paid presumably tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to be the sponsor of this thing, is none too pleased with with this decision. But kind of the you have to wonder how much these Qataris uh, made made it worth the FIFA officials' while uh, to to make the decision that they did a decade ago for all of that foregone revenue, all of these conveniences and, um, and, uh, and kind of niceties of, of this tournament to, to go by the wayside. I know Esther, you mentioned that none of them, uh, or there, there's been no explicit, uh, causation proven by these, these, uh, law enforcement officials, but something, something like 18 of 24, members of that original board that made that decision of, of where this is going to be has have been indicted on something or other over the past 12 years, something like that. So, um, and, and FIFA, I think it was 2014 or 2015, uh, the got a new, uh, a new president, um, Sepp Blatter, uh, which was an excellent Austin Powersy villain name, uh, of, of a FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, um is is was uh arrested and uh and now no longer who what's the guy's name it's like something it's italian infanti infantini infant yeah infantini infantino oh golly is that is that italian is that italian for dr evil Um, (laughs) i'm looking forward to when it's hunter biden (laughs) you mentioned like a year ago so he now lives there at least part-time which is very handy for him uh, uh, production team says Gianni Infantino. So yeah, um, there's the worst team. part of this World Cup story, by the way. Oh, you know, what is that? This new temporary pub in London that's been opened up just for the duration of the World Cup. I haven't seen this new pub that's been opened up. It's just going to be open while the World Cup is going. Bunch of televisions stuff for people to come watch. It's called the Colonel's Arms, and it is operated by KFC. The Colonel's Arms. KFC has opened a pub in London just for the World Cup. And it's a pub. Like, you know, genius. Genius. That's fantastic. Hey, um, as a as a as a, a guy who grew up in Kentucky, many times have I driven past the Colonel's home headquarters right outside of Louisville. And um, you are talking to a live in the flesh Kentucky Colonel. I've got the certificate and everything. <laughs> so yeah, can't claim any uh, ownership over the chicken, but I am a. Is it, do I they give a, you like a little plastic chicken wings that you can pin on your your shirt, kind of like the the pilots give kids as they walk down the? No, it, uh, as a in true Seb Gorka fashion, I have created my own medal for that, and uh, <laughs> I have like a, a quasi uniform that I wear. Um, okay, well we're we're speaking of quasi uniforms. How about that for a segue? Wow, Declan, <laughs> Jack Smith. Special counsel appointed, um, not to refer too much to advisory opinions, but I'll just say all is unfolding as we have foreseen. (laughs) Special counsel has been appointed. Um, Jack Smith, tell us about Jack Smith. Yeah, he's... uh, Oh, and I should say special counsel in the Trump investigation, um, the DOJ Trump investigation. Yes, so this was Trump announced his his run for president on... Tuesday, last Tuesday, and then three days later, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland came out 
um, had a press conference, put out a bunch of statements, signed some some forms, and voila, there was a special counsel uh, appointed to basically take over two separate uh, investigations into into Donald Trump. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, they're kind of morphing into one kind of under his just jurisdiction. This is, again, the um, the documents Mar-a-Lago case that that came to the fore in August when when the FBI executed a search warrant there. Um, and then anything kind of stemming from illegal interference in the transfer of power January 6th, um, all encompassing investigation there. So. Again, this is, you know, we we put this in the morning dispatch today. This is possibly the most politically fraught uh, federal investigation in, in the country's history. Um, it's, you know, incredibly thorny. There's not there's not an easy answer to any of this. Uh, is it OK for uh, the incoming in, or the standing administration to investigate a formal former political rival who is also a future political rival? Um do, is that okay to, to to be helmed within the Department of Justice? Merrick Garland uh, decided no, it is not, and he appointed the special counsel Jack Smith, um, who has a decades long career in in prosecuting and and um, in and out of the the DOJ itself. He started in the um, Manhattan DA's office, spent several years there prosecuting crime. Um, did a stint at the the Department of Justice in the public integrity section, um, which is the uh, portion of the the DOJ that's responsible for investigating basically elected officials and and kind of um, public facing corruption. So he was uh, a part of the team that investigated former um, Governor of Virginia Robert McDonnell uh, uh, on corruption charges that those charges that they brought were eventually overturned unanimously at the Supreme Court. They had disputes over kind of what evidence is permissible and and kind of the definitions of, of corruption there. Um, also was uh, a key figure in investigating a former Republican member of Congress from Arizona, Rick Renzi, um, and then uh, took over what was at the time, I think when he got to DOJ, had been going on for five or six years, an investigation into Tom DeLay, um, this was the Republican member of the House and opted not to press charges in, in that case. That was a very politically unpopular decision at the time to um, kind of decide that, you know, hey, we don't have enough evidence to to bring a convincing case. We don't think we're going to win. We're not going to bring this case. Um, and so those are kind of three different routes that are that are mapped out for Smith here um, that uh, he could take with this Trump stuff. And I, and I should, David teed me up for this transition so nicely. And I just kind of let the ball fall on the ground and, and dribble a couple times out of bounds. So, um, he, when he mentioned a, a uniform, uh, he spent the past several years, basically most of the Trump era, um, in the Netherlands at the Hague investigating, uh, international war crimes specifically, I think in the past couple of years in Kosovo, um, so he kind of has been out of the back and forth, you know, there's so many, uh, scandals in, in the, or kind of people letting people in law enforcement, letting their political beliefs be known over the past five or six years, kind of making, um, their opposition to, to Donald Trump front and center. He has not been in the middle of that maelstrom. Uh, he's kind of kept quiet during this, this period. And so he's coming in, he's going to be taking, it sounds like from from reporting most of the existing teams from the DOJ that have been working on this for months that uh, or you know over a year in the case of the the January sixth stuff um, and kind of bringing it across the finish line. 
and and making a final recommendation to Merrick Garland as to whether to indict Trump um, as as he's gearing up for his 2024 run. So, um, David, I, as the as the legal expert on this on this dispatch live, I'll I'll defer to you on a lot of this stuff. But my understanding is one that that under you know federal regulations, Garland is all not required, but heavily uh, suggested that that a, a special counsel should be appointed if he yeah, determines th- this that there's, is the right call. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then two, uh, if that special counsel makes a recommendation, asks for resources or asks um, for the legal authority to to carry out parts of this investigation and uh, Garland says no, that has to be publicly reported to Congress. Um, and, and so that in theory is um, if, if the Biden administration wants to take steps or or squash uh potential investigative leads they need to do that in an, an embarrassing and kind of public way that, that that the public knows about so that's a lot of information dump um we'll probably see the the conclusion of at least one of these investigations i would suspect in the next couple months um the, it sounded like uh things were gearing up to uh go one way or the other leading up to the election and then kind of there's this unofficial but quasi-officials 90-day freeze where you're not going to indict or or announce charges of a political official um in the lead up to an election but it sounds like this could be this could be coming relatively soon so uh i'll i'll just field this question jason godwin asks not related to the special counsel directly but related to investigations on trump where does the jury grand jury invest georgia grand jury investigation stand this is not related to the special counsel because this is a state law, um, a, a state investigation. This is Atlanta, Fulton County in this incredibly unusual circumstance where you have a county district attorney investigating a former president of the United States for actions undertaken while he's a president, which is wild that this is happening. But it's also between the Mar-a-Lago document issue and the election steal effort, the state law uh, the state law in Georgia is one of the most straightforward potential prosecutions of Trump. Georgia's solicitation to commit uh, elect- election fraud statute pretty directly on point. Um, so the answer is the grand jury investigation is in process. This particular grand jury is a special grand jury that cannot hand down an indictment itself, but it is a prudent measure to uh, commission this grand jury so that its recommendations are not that the that the DA, um, who's an, uh, this is an elected elected position, the DA is not seen as as excessively political. If there's also a grand jury uh, finding here or grand jury recommendation, we'll see. This is the wild card to me. This is a wild card. Um, all right. Now here is a question a lot of people are asking. And I'm going to ask it like this. Can I interrupt for a second before you do that? Because I'm just curious. You sure. said that the, the statute is pretty straightforward, which which I get. But does that mean that you think they have a, a plausible case as well? Very plausible. So okay. what the statute prohibits is a solicitation, an effort to solicit uh, the commission of election fraud. Uh, and so let me let me put it this this way. If I'm let's say I'm a sheriff, let's say I'm running for sheriff of Cobb County, Georgia or whatever, and I'm losing the election and I'm losing by 40 votes. And uh, I call the election official, the highest election official in the county. And I say, you know what I need? I need 41 votes. And 
you know, a lot of people are saying you could go to jail if I don't get those 41 votes, right? And it's on tape. Yeah. Well, we're already negotiating the plea deal at that point. I mean, the, the idea that a, a person who has authority over the justice system to some degree um, and, and, and Trump, who is the highest ranking law enforcement official in the United States, was on tape talking about how many votes he needs and not so subtly um, threatening criminal prosecution if he didn't get it. It's hard to read that statute and listen to that tape and not think that this there's a color that there's a pretty compelling case. And that's not even diving at all to the fake electors and and all of this. So it's a quite plausible, plausible case. Um, okay. And there's a there's actually a Brookings report on this that's commissioned by uh that that is a hundred plus pages of legal analysis of Georgia law <laughs> on this very point. Very compelling reading. If you want to read a think tank report on Georgia election law, um, in our remaining time, though, we're getting a lot of questions about. The, and let me ask it like this, and and I'll go to you, Kevin, first, and then and we'll round around the team. You are Mike DeSantis or Ron DeSantis. You are Nikki Haley. You're Mike Pence. In the evening, as you go to bed and pray for your political fortunes, are you praying that Donald Trump get indicted or that Donald Trump be left alone? What do you think? Man, that's a hard one. Um, I kind of think that their prayers have already been answered by Elon Musk putting him back on Twitter. Um <laughs> Because now I understand that Trump has some contractual obligations that are supposed to keep him from using Twitter rather than using Truth Social. Well, we, all know how, for that, yeah. we all know how much he cares about that sort of thing and how deeply committed he is to honoring his word in every agreement he's ever entered into. Um, you know, if he actually sort of gets back into um, 500 tweets a day, sort of stuff. I think that actually drains enough of his energy away from uh, meaningful, meaningful in quotation marks, their political pursuits that um, and maybe all they really need. Um, I tend to think that, um, you know, Trump's relationship with his hardcore believers, as I've written and said many times, is essentially a cult relationship. And they see him as a kind of um, you know, suffering savior, someone who was persecuted mm -hmm. on their behalf. So I think that for the really, really hardcore Trump people, that an indictment or an arrest or a conviction or anything like that would, if anything, deepen their commitment to him. Um, but whether that um, simultaneously drives away enough people who don't have a quasi-religious devotion to the man and uh, therefore leaves him politically worse off, I think is is a matter of math that I'm not really able to do at this point. And not just because I'm an English major and can't do math. I, I think <laughs> it requires uh, information not currently available. So Declan, two quick questions. One is that tall glass you're drinking from, that looks like bourbon. And if that is, how are you still vertical? Um, and And two, do you think, I mean, do you think an indictment would boost or cripple uh, Trump's 
political fortunes? Uh, first question first. This is honest tea, half tea, half lemonade. Uh, mm. It is it is mm-hmm. a uh as a regular staple of of my diet unfortunately it is going out of stock at the end of 2022 coca-cola bought the company and is now discontinuing it um half tea half lemonade is called an arnold palmer i mm. i'm I, I do know that uh this is better than anything that that arnold or any of his compadres have ever have ever come up with um so I, it will be missed uh, um, unless there's any coca-cola executives here who want to save it uh but second question, um, I, I think we've started to see the answer to the, these candidates are answering it themselves. I, I made this point in, in the morning dispatch today when when the FBI executed the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago or raided Mar-a-Lago, depending on your um, preferred parlance there. The entire Republican Party was up in arms very quickly, uh, very loudly. Ron DeSantis called, uh, you know, this was without a shred of, you know, information about what this was about, why they were doing it, um, what the lead up to it has been, kind of the negotiations, immediately jumped to Banana Republic uh, political persecution. That hasn't happened this time uh, with, the, with the special counsel. We, you know, I, I, I think Ted Cruz put out one tweet calling it the politicization of the Justice Department. Um, Mike Pence said he was troubled by uh, the development because of previous uh, malfeasance at the DOJ he, that he just doesn't trust um, that it will be handled correctly. And a couple of backbenchers have have kind of done their typical um, dog and pony show. But like for the most part, people are pretty quiet about um, about this decision. And part of that, I think, is what we were talking about earlier is that... Um, you know, they are now, they sense Trump's weakness. We don't have to rally around this guy anymore. Uh, and half of them who thought there's no way I'd, I'd be able to run for president in August now are like, eh, eh no, I could, I could. And, and I will. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're making different calculations there. Um, and so in terms of their own benefit, I think they'd be fine to see him, you know, fully indicted and charged, but I don't think that that's going to happen before 2024, even if it were to happen, you know, the appeals process is very long and drawn out and it particularly would be for the president of the United States. I like, I think, and again, I've been wrong about this 30 times before. So please nobody listen to me or, or believe what I'm about to say, but it really no, wait, feels don't, like don't, don't turn, make people turn it off. Cause we've got two <laughs> last questions and the last one, I have things to say. But okay. anyway, go ahead. I, I just really think he's going to fizzle out a little bit on his own here. Um, just he's got to r- run a campaign for two years when all he really is uh, interested in talking about is himself and his own personal grievances. He was able to stay on uh, on message for one speech uh, that, you know, networks cut away from after 20 minutes. Um, but for the next two years, it's going to be a lot of like, conspiracies about why he wasn't reinstated in august 2021 uh because arizona didn't redo their elections for him and um you know vaguely QAnon adjacent memes that depict him as a lion saving his flock from whatever uh you know it's gonna get weird and people are gonna tune out and to the extent that the justice department lets that happen on its own um and and other candidates can kind of rise to fill the void i think that's to everybody's benefit including the desantis's and the haley's 
It's okay, going to so, get weird, you said? It's, good. it's not <laughs> been. It's, Where you been, man? <laughs> our, our, colleague, uh, our colleague, Nick Alapundit's uh, newsletter title, Boiling Frogs, paints this very well. Uh, we have gotten used to a lot of weird, but uh, I think in the absence of him being on the, the stage, Trump, on a daily basis, people have forgotten or not realized just how kind of uh, far he's fallen into the depths of the weird. He's gotten online, weird, right? Yeah, he's gotten weird. So, Esther, last second to last question to you, and it's going to be a little bit of a curveball. In your view, who is the Republican not named Ron DeSantis that is most likely to emerge as a Trump contender, or is it just those two? I mean, golly, I want to know. I want to know what you those two. But if I were gonna, you know, of this giant vaguely prospective field i feel like nikki haley mm. i just think um you know she's charismatic she has some chops if if i were gonna you know pull my normie friends um a lot a surprising number of them know her name and have positive feelings about her mm-hmm. even people who aren't from her state um and she also, you know, is kind of able to pitch herself as the future of the Republican Party in some ways that aren't necessarily that compelling to say Trump voters. Um, but she also really, for the most part, did a pretty effective job of of speaking some of her frustrations with Donald Trump while also remaining not totally on the outs. So, you know, I don't know if she has any chance of going anywhere, but. That's that's the name that I'm going to throw out there. I like it. I like it. All right. So here's the last question from Ethan Mackler. It says, isn't Artemis a bit of a waste? Like it's cool, no doubt, but it's tens of billions of dollars. Here's my answer. I'm taking this one. How dare you, sir? How dare you? Say, Artemis is a escape space capsule for, for Artemis is everybody knows what it is. It is <laughs> I don't know that that's true, David. First. Come on. It's our first mission back to the moon, unmanned for right now. <clears throat> a giant space, a, a giant rocket. Uh, look, I, what did it cost? A hundred billion? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> and it's amazing. I was in Miami last week. Hit, the launch was scheduled for like 105 in the morning. I got like a tent. I was at a conference. I got, I gathered a gang of nerds and we went to the beach it got delayed about an hour, but at 2 a.m. on Miami Beach, I watched that thing lift off from about 140 miles away, and it was a highlight. It was a highlight to see what looked like a reverse meteor, one going up instead of down. And I mean, and then we have the SpaceX Starship launching maybe in December uh, for its first orbital flight, and that thing is a monster. I mean, that's a 400-foot Super heavy booster. I don't know how many Falcon, how many, how many um, Raptor engines? Uh, who knows? 11. Uh, I don't know. No, new. <laughs> Come on. No you can't even count that high. And, <laughs> and so this is my, this is my favorite thing. And, and I was talking to somebody in all seriousness. Sorry, Ryan, we're going a little long, but I'm, I've got things to say. I was talking to somebody a hundred years from now. What are you remembering? about this period. I mean, hopefully Trump's a footnote. Sadly, you're going to remember the Russia-Ukraine war, but you're also going to remember this is when we revived the space program. And this is when we took the next step 
into becoming a spacefaring civilization. And I'm here for it. And I'm going to petition when Elon finally gets to Mars, he needs a journalist on that flight. Um, and so I'm making my appeal right now for that and stop paying so much attention to, to Twitter. Uh, you've got David, I have a long list of journalists I'd like to send to Mars. <laughs> and I'm on the top of that list. I need to be on the top of the list. David, I, I I knew you were in Miami last week. I'm so glad to find out that you had an actual conference and that you didn't go just to watch that space <laughs> launch for like two minutes on, on 2 a.m. in the morning. Oh, he'd I got closer if he'd gone just to watch the launch. <laughs> I know. I'd have gone to Canaveral. I would have been there. I almost <laughs> just, I almost just Ubered up there. But that was going to be a lot of money. Uh, so, no, I didn't do it. But uh, it was fantastic. I mean, the thing goes off. I'm watching it on my phone. And then I'm waiting. When can I see it? When can I see it? When can I see it? It took about 15 <laughs> seconds for it to clear the skyline. And it was it was glorious. So, Ethan, how how dare you? How dare you? And on that note, thank you so much for watching. Really appreciate it. Um, happy Thanksgiving to everyone at the dispatch. We really appreciate you. You make our work possible. So I hope you enjoy a wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving holiday and we'll see.